You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, this is uh, Jay Harwitz with the Amazing Mets Alumni Podcast and visiting old friend Bobby Ojeda. Before we get into the, you know, I'm an unbiased opinion, to me, Bobby's one of the most underappreciated heroes of the 1986 team. We'll go into that a little later. I want to cover some other stuff first. I forget what the year was, Bobby, 86 or 87. Um, you took me out to celebrate your brother-in-law's impending uh, wedding. You treated me to some egg creams, a couple of diet sodas. Okay. I think you dropped me off at City at Shea Stadium at 5, 6 o'clock in the morning. And I didn't go home, and I fell asleep in a closet in my office. And when my poor secretary, Lynn, came in that day, she thought I was dead. Do you happen to remember that night? No. No, but I, my memory yeah. is shy. I love hearing these stories. Well, I remember it. I gave this poor girl a heart attack that night. Uh, I was spreading. You know, Usually I could wake myself up, but not that night. Oh, God. Another thing, you know, Phil Regan was uh, nicknamed a vulture. And you perhaps got the all-time vulture win in the history of vulture wins. Yeah. Uh, the summer of 1981, your team, Portucket, is playing Rochester, 32-inning game. The first eight hours, you probably sat around eating hot dogs and hamburgers. <laughs> Two months later, the game was continued. You pitched one half an inning. 18 minutes later, you got a win. Right. 33 innings, the longest game in the history of pro, pro ball. What do you remember about that game, sir? I do. I remember that because I actually went home in like the 20th inning the night before uh, that when that game happened a few months earlier, I was pitching the next day. I've always, you know, kind of had a horseshoe uh, every now and then I get to play that card. So I went home and it was in the morning. I found out how late it went. And then as luck would have it, my day to pitch, uh, Joe Morgan didn't manipulate the rotation to have me pitch that that game when it when it came around again it just worked out and, and you got three, the win. Uh, I got the win 13 pitches and I uh, got the win and I wanted to throw the second game but Joe wouldn't let me do it because I was getting yeah. called up and he said you know whatever but yeah now that was a that was probably the golden vulture win of all time no no, no question so Robert uh, 15 <laughs> uh, 34 years ago this month uh, uh, Mets acquired you in a trade with the Red Sox, seven-player trade. Uh, coming over from Boston in, in the winter of '85, what did you know about the, you know, the, the you know, uh, the '85, you know, Mets? You know, just had gotten Gary Carter, blah blah, Dwight Gooden. What did you know about the team? Not a thing, Jay. Honest to goodness, I'm like a, I'm when I'm in my own world, and my own world was the Red Sox and the American League. I didn't know or care anything about the NL or the New York Mets. I could care less. I had no, no interest in what they had been doing. And then uh, I got the call when I got, I got traded over, and I said to the New York Mets, and I'm like, okay. You know, I had no idea what to expect when I arrived at spring training 86, and then I, you know, it began to unfold this cast of characters that I was joining. It was a pretty different kind of cast. So you start off the year in the bullpen, couple of appearances and you go into the rotation and all you do is you know go 18 and 5 with a 2-5 ERA you know second in the league and uh 
um, you know, and really established ourselves as, you know, 108-win season. Uh, was there one particular time, Bobby, do you thought the team was a special team? I would say, uh, yeah, I would say even in spring training, I don't, I don't talk much. My, my whole spiel is I, I like to be in the background. I like to watch things go on. You know, I like to maybe manipulate one thing or another. But watching, as I did at the old Huggins-Stingle field, that little locker room that was very cool, it was like from the, from the 20s, watching the guys, the way they were at, reacting with each other. And I, I really did. I spent a lot of time. I'm a trout fisherman. Trout fishermen watch, and then we cast. So I was watching. I was reading what was going on, and I was getting to know Davy Johnson and Mel Stottlemyre. And I just thought the way this team clicked together um, had the potential to be something something legit. And then by then, I'd certainly known what they had done the last year or two. Uh, and I'd never really experienced that in in uh, in the major leagues. You know, Boston. It was a lot of a lot of uh, anger <laughs> with the fans and stuff. Just <laughs> getting over the Babe Ruth trade. Um, but no, I, I could. I just picked up the vibe that this team, at least mentally, at this point in the season, looks like it's got something weird going on because the message from day one is that we don't win the whole thing. We are useless piles of you-know-what. Um, there was never any, let's just get to the postseason. No, it was that we're winning the whole thing, or we all should just quit. So that speaking of message. pressure, speaking of pressure, Mets mm -hmm. lose game one in a series to Mike Scott in Houston. You're pitching mm -hmm. game two. I mean, mm -hmm. nobody wanted to go back to New York down you know, 2-0. And all you did, you pitched a complete game, beat Nolan Ryan uh, to even a series, perhaps at that point the biggest win of the season for the Mets. Do you remember what you felt going into that game, you know, not wanting to go down 2-0? Yeah, I, I tell you, I, I didn't want to get ahead of ourselves. You know, okay, we lose one game, and that's kind of okay. That wasn't as bad as I know we're going to talk about in a few minutes. So we're down one zip. Uh, but that's okay. I knew I had work to do, I, I, and my confidence was high. Even though my arm was you know, hanging on by a thread, I was still very confident in my ability to go out there. And I've always, even as a little kid, I always was a money player. I always liked the added pressure, and I've always had the ability to talk myself down to make it just another day, whereas internally I'm, I'm boiling over with emotion but I was able to tap it down and then I'm facing Nolan, but I don't care. I'm not, you know, I had to face him literally as a hitter. Uh, but I knew if I threw up some zeros and, and uh, did my job, I had a pretty solid team, you know, but, behind me. So we'd be okay. But, you know, okay. So Mets win 16 innings, game six, don't have to face Scott, start the world series, lose the first two games at home. Do you feel Bobby looking back? Was there any like hangover? Oh, that's a bad word to use, I guess. Huh? From the Houston well, yeah. series, I've never had one of those. I Not me either. Was. I mean, you think it was a hangover <laughs> from how hard it was, you know, losing game two at home, first two games at home. No, I don't think it was a hangover. That team knew how to play and win. We knew how to play and win. It didn't matter. There was never any letdown. We we always wanted to beat whoever we're playing, beat them, step on their throat, and move on. It was just a question. We kind of got outplayed the first couple days. Uh, the first two games, and uh, that's the way it goes sometimes. They were a good team. They weren't as good as us. That's the fantasy. It was like, oh, they lost. They didn't, win it. they didn't lose it. The greatest team finally did what we were supposed to do, and it was kick their tail. We were better than them, matchup to matchup, pitcher to pitcher, 
fan to fan, coach to coach. We out-trumped them everywhere, and, and we almost dropped the ball by dropping those first two. So you, you pitched game three. Uh, you know, how, how did you feel? You've been with Red Sox, you know, the first eight years mm-hmm. of your career, basically coming back to your Fenway Park, pitch for the Mets in a big mm-hmm. series. How was, you know, did you feel going to that game? It was the biggest moment of my life, biggest game. I mean, even before we got there, Jay, when we were getting to the – when we were – you know, when it looked like we were going to beat Houston and we're going on, I was watching the other side and I'm like, can you imagine if I have to face my old teammates a year less than a year later? So I was really pulling hard for the Angels. Um, and then it came, I'm like, I can't make this up. I'm like, are you kidding me? I got to face these guys and go back into Boston down to, and I had a great I had great friendships on that team. I really did. And I, like any team, I had guys I couldn't stand, which is normal. Um, I loved the fans. I loved playing there. I loved the ballpark. That was my, I made my major league debut there with Boston against Detroit. First pitch was a strike. I'll never forget it. Um, I remember walking out on that, on that field for the first time. So it was like going back into my old neighborhood and we're, our backs are against the wall. Down two zip is not where I wanted to be. But, you know, I remember going out to the bullpen and warming up and the people, you know, yelling and screaming and hollering and stuff. It was awesome. It was electric. But I really had to tamp down, again, my emotions. Now, I did have, you know, uh, an axe to grind with ownership because I never cared for them. I didn't care for that group at all. I didn't care for the general manager. I didn't care for anything. I didn't like them at all. So, and they didn't like me. It was mutual. Um, I do remember the night, I'll get you a quick story. The night before game three, I went out to dinner and I'm trying to, you know, keep a lid on everything. I, I'm going back to the hotel. I go to the hotel. I push the elevator button. The doors open up. There's the general manager and one of the other clowns in the front office with cigars the size of your leg. Happy as a clam. Clearly they'd had a couple of things for dinner. And they give me a real, real sarcastic, ah, good luck tomorrow. Oh, yeah, yeah, good luck. <laughs> Laugh it up. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm like, you can't, again, you can't make this up. So they pretty much felt at that point after the two games, it would, the game was over. And I'm like, well, boys, it ain't over. And you might have just given me a little extra incentive to remind me how much I didn't like you guys and you didn't like me. So Lenny hits a leadoff home run. We score four in the first yep. inning. You pitched seven yep. innings, one run. So the two biggest games of the postseason, you pitched 16 innings, give up two, two earned runs. That's not bad. Right. I'm, uh, I'm awesome. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Bob, it would be fair to say, you know, I'm your friend, that kind of weird things happen to you sometimes. Um, yeah. One game. Yeah. I know whether it's 87, 88, you're pitching. There's a fly ball hit to left field, and the ball hits a pigeon and kills a pigeon. <laughs> Remember that? I do. Nobody ever talked. It was like it never happened. I'm like, did anybody else see that but me? No. The bird exploded. I'm like, no, some weird, no question, Jay. I, I, I just, it's like some, somebody said I'm like Forrest Gump. Yeah. They said just this weird stuff happens to you, and you do wind up on top, but you do get weird things happening to you. But yeah, I picture that bird, and then the next guy hit a home run, and we wound up losing. Made it even worse. Speaking of weird things, not one bad point. It's kind of, looking back, it's a little bit not funny. It's probably not the word word. It's September of 88. One in virtue, our second playoffs. You were out cutting your grass for some reason. Yeah. And you cut off the middle part of your left finger. The top part of your finger. Yeah, working in the yard. Yeah. 
that was not one of my most shining moments. I've only had a couple and that was just a dumb thing to do. And I paid the price and, um, you know, I would have, I'd love to play and I'd love to have pressure on me. So for me to miss that was, was devastating. I was crushed. I, I didn't let it on. I tried to put on a brave face. I even went with the team to LA and, the last place I wanted to be was sitting on the sidelines like an idiot. But what are you going to do? Sometimes you do dumb stuff. You pay the price, and then you move on. That's all I could do. I wish it would have worked out different for the club. I never had a chance to make a difference on the field well, you did. like I did in 86. And I would have loved to, but what are you going to do? Bobby, you know, two now quick non-baseball stories. I know uh, mm-hmm. you've had a lot of experience in the media. You wrote some articles for the New York Times, first person. You did TV and radios. But now you're writing a mm-hmm. book. Tell, tell us what, yes. what's the book about. Well, I I don't have that creative of a mind. It's mildly creative, I must admit. But you write. I, I'm writing about what I know. I'm writing about a young guy trying to make it in in professional baseball. Wow, there's a stretch, right? Who saw that coming? But it is strictly a novel. Um, I, it's I'm taking some some true life experiences. And I'm expanding on them, and I'm taking them in a different direction, and I'm trying to make it interesting. Um, and I, I'm enjoying myself immensely. I, this, the guy in my book has become a person, and uh, it's almost, you know, he's removed from me. And I write about his thing, what he's doing, what he wants to do, what he's thinking, what he's feeling, and it's a, a tremendous amount of freedom to be able to make it up and not worry about telling stories about people, not worry about uh, trying to be 100% accurate. You and I could watch the same thing. Ten years later, our recollections will, will be entirely different. So I have no interest in trying to make something up to make myself feel more important than I, than I should be. Bobby, when do you think it might be done? Have you any idea? I'm hoping to be done. I mean, done before it hits editing in probably six months. Oh, great. Uh, and then and then we'll see where it goes. I, I'm, I'm hoping it comes out good. I'm really, really enjoying myself. And I think, you know, I have to try to do it. It's sort of one of those things that's kind of been burning in me for a oh, long, long time. I know it come, come out well. Yeah. Lastly, I know you've told me the story. I just wanted to give uh, the audience a quick synopsis with, you know, the uh, 20th anniversary of 9-11 is coming up in a year or so. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't know, on the day when the towers came down, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. commandeered a boat with a friend of yours, went to Pier 11, basically rescued your daughter from one of the uh, buildings that came down. Yeah. Can you give us a quick synopsis of how it came about? Well, it was just one of the worst days of all of our lives, and uh, very fortunate to have my daughter. was living here in Jersey and taking the path into the city. And uh, she, it was the morning, I'm telling you, Jay, I was heading to Shea Stadium for a softball game. And it's nine o'clock in the morning around that. And I'm getting, I'm getting ready to leave the house and I'm driving in the car. I got 10 tens on and they're like, Oh, a small plane hit the tower. You're like, Oh, I'm, this is unfolding. I'm like, wow, you know, this is what's happening here. And it's unfolding so slowly because no one could believe what actually happened. And my daughter was, was, she had just gotten to the world trade center. She takes the elevator up from underneath the escalator she comes up, calls me on the phone while I'm in the car, and we have a conversation. I'm driving down the, up the parkway, and she goes, you know, Dad, uh, the plane. I said, yes. I said, honey, I'm hearing on the radio, boom, boom, boom. I'm listening, and the 1010 is on. I got her on the phone. She's describing to me verbatim what's going on, what I'm hearing in a, a little bit of delay on the radios. They're reporting she's living. So 
she's telling me this and that and the other. I'm like, okay. I said, all right, well, sit tight. I said, I'm going to the city. I'm going to, I'll pick you up on my way home and you don't have to ride the train at that point. Now, you know, this is all happening quick. And then she goes, while I'm on the phone with her, I'm trying to, I can tell she's upset. I'm trying to calm, calm her down a little bit. And she comes out and she goes, dad, there's people jumping out of windows. And I said, and I visualized the, the towers and you know how the first two floors, there was no windows. It was open like vestibule or whatever. And then, and then the first floor actually started up about two stories or so. And when she said they're jumping out of the windows, I'm like, oh man, yeah, all right. They're jumping two floors. That's not good, but all right. And then I go, well, this is my visual in my head. And then the reality is they said, Jim, well, how high are they? And she goes, 80 floors. I go, whoa, this is real. So I'm just about, we've been on the phone. I'm just about to get on the outer bridge, heading over, over Staten Island in my city. And I'm like, oh, my God. And now I got the radio going on. And, and this whole time frame is going on. I got the radio going on. And now it's escalating. It's bad. So I would say, well, at that moment, I wasn't almost to the bridge, but it was unfolding and getting really bad. And I was going to drive directly to the city to get her. I was in my car. And then the, the news reports, this is about 20 minutes after 9 now. Um, I'm about to hit the outer bridge, and it's escalated to the point where, oh, my God. So I just catch that last exit to get off the bridge, which, thank God, because then I'd have been stuck on the bridge because they closed everything. So I whip around. I'm going 100 miles an hour back down the parkway. I call my buddy who's got a boat. I don't know what made me think of this, but whatever. My buddy, he goes, he, I call him. I said, dude, I'm going to need your boat. He goes, what for? And the whole thing, I said, well, I'm going to go get my daughter in the city. We've got all this going on. He goes, I'm going with you. I'm like, no, no, just give me your boat. I'll go. He goes, nope, I'll meet you there. So we go to the dock. Now it's all unfolding. And the weird thing is I'm able to keep getting my daughter on the cell phone, which was a miracle because that wasn't happening for a lot of people. Get back. I meet him at the boat. We get in the boat. Naturally, he's out of gas, so we have to put gas. And I had stopped by home before we went. I met him at the boat, and I grabbed my father's flag. He was uh, uh, in the Army. So we get on the boat. We head in. I'm talking to my daughter. I'm saying, look, sit tight for now. We got the radio on. It's all unfolding, the whole thing. And I said, look, just sit tight. I'm coming. And if you happen to get, if you, if you happen to get on a ferry and are coming home, We'll be coming in. I'm going to hang the flag off the side of the boat so we don't get shot so you know we're good guys. And I said, just go on the top deck of these big ferries that are coming back and forth to Jersey and just wave so I see you so we'll turn around and come back. So we're going in. We're going in. I'm thinking we're going to get to the Verrazano Bridge, and they're going to go, that's it, boys. You are out of your mind. Turn this thing around. So we're going, and we're hearing on the radio. I've got my daughter on the phone. It's just surreal what's going on. We hit the bridge. No one's there. We keep going. We hit Governor's Island. At the moment we were just about to make the right to go around Governor's Island, my daughter on the phone says, Dad, what was that? felt like an earthquake. At that moment, they were reporting the tower fell. Me and Lenny are looking at the, at the tower, and we're like, no, it didn't fall. We're looking. I mean, all we see is dust, which we've been looking, smoking, whatever, on our way in because we had a complete view of it the whole way in from, from Jersey. And it's like, no, it's it. no, no. And I tell my daughter, I says, no, no. I says, don't worry about that. That was nothing because she's hearing on the radio that Tower Fall fell and she's two blocks from there. 
I said, no, 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 it didn't fall. Don't worry about it. It's, don't worry. I don't know what might have been a little earthquake. Whatever. Don't worry about it because I don't want to freak out. So now where all these papers are flying through the air, we're like, holy heck, you know. So we keep going. We get around Governor's Island. I think we are, somebody's going to shoot us any minute. We get around. I tell my daughter, I said, sit tight. Do not go. Sit tight right now. Stay in. Sit tight. And I said, we get cut off. I said, we get cut off, you come down to the, where the boat is. If we don't, just stay on the phone with me. Stay on the phone with me. So we're going, you know, on the reports and the papers and the smoke and the dust and all this is horrible. And uh, the Coast Guard, one of those little Coast Guard little, little boats with the machine gun on front comes pulling up to us, and he's zipping around. He's, what are you guys doing? He's got the machine gun on us. What are you guys doing? I said, look, come to get my kid. And uh, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty funny because it was pretty intense. You know, you got smoke, you got paper, you got this horrible thing happening in front of your eyes, and then you got a machine gun on you because they think we're the bad guys. And then the guy just, he was so cool. He was, okay, go ahead. So we go ahead and pull up right next to the old Pier 11. Remember that old red building? And we pull up. The water's choppy as heck, and he's got like a 26-foot center console. So he pulls up. I go, okay, okay. So I throw my leg up onto the thing and I grab onto the thing. So I got one leg on the boat, one arm on the boat, one on the railing, and I'm doing the splits like Jack LaLanne. All of a sudden I go, you good? You good? I'm going to let go. He goes, no, 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 don't let go. I said, why? He goes, the engine shut off. I'm like, really? Is this how happening? Engine shuts off. I hear him go, just trying to start the thing. All of a sudden it starts and he goes, okay, I'm good. So I let go, climb up over the thing, jump over the rail. I tell my daughter right before that happened. I said, okay, I'm coming your way. Start coming down, and I'm going to meet you. So I, I start I running up, and no one's panicking. They, New Yorkers are tough. No one's running like maniacs. Everybody's walking extremely briskly. Uh, they're heading towards the water. It wasn't this mass destruction where people are stepping over people. It wasn't. It was amazing. Amazing in such horrific circumstance. And the weirdest thing, this old lady sees me. And she goes, oh, my gosh, aren't you, Bobby? You hate it? Like it's a, a Sunday afternoon picnic. I go, yeah, yeah, I am. I said, and, she, and then her, her grandson goes, yeah, boy, we're big fans. I'm like, this is weird. So I spend like two seconds with her. I said, okay, I got to go, you know. So then I go running up the street, and a, 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 a cop friend of mine here from town is there. He's, what are you doing? I said, I'm coming to get my kid. He's, oh, man, cool. So I, I go running up whatever street it was. I don't even remember. And she comes down, and I meet her. I see her, and boom, we we uh, we turn around and head back down to the boat. Lenny's circling out in the out in the harbor there, and I wave to him. And so he comes pulling the boat back over, and he's next to <laughs> next to the wall, and it's about an eight foot jump, and it's choppy, and it's a twelve foot little boat. I'm not sure if it was center console. He'll know what it was. I don't remember. So I tell her, well, you you, you got to jump. I mean, that's it. We don't we got to jump. So she clutched up and she jumped at whatever you know, six feet, eight feet, whatever it was, onto a onto a boat deck, lands, and then I jump, and then we 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 shove off. It's a, and we just are like in we're numb, and we head out, yeah. and we're seeing this unfold. And you know, my daughter was you know, just in shock, but then, boy, we made it home, you know, it was, it was... It's a great story, Bob. Yeah, hey, it was tough. Listen, thank, thank you for your time, and I appreciate your friendship through the years, and we'll talk soon, huh? Okay, bro. Thanks, man. Thank you. Bye, bye, bye. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best 
stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.